Life, welcome. We are really glad that you decided to join us tonight. And I'm going to be talking tonight, um, as you saw in the video, about God restoring and his ability to restore. Um, Now, something about God restoring, this is really obvious, but for God to restore, it means that something needs to be broken. It It means that something needs restoring, right? And so I remember the first time um, I kind of came to this realization that we live in a broken world, that this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. I was six years old, and I had wanted a cat for a really long time. And I remember, I mean, for years, I had begged my mom, can I have a cat, can I have a cat, can I have a cat? So no, 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 no. Well, eventually, she said, yes, you can have a cat. And so I got this cat, and in my six-year-old mind, I thought the best name for my cat was Pancake. So I have this cat, named it Pancake. I have no idea why. And I had this cat for three weeks, all right? So life is good, loving my six-year-old life. And my mom comes in one day, and she's, like, her face is red, and she's, like, almost shaking, and she's like, Elizabeth, I am so sorry, but I ran over your cat. And I'm not even kidding. She said, I made Pancake into a pancake. (laughs) It's true. Can you believe that? So anyways, I'm okay. If you feel bad, I've worked through it. I'm okay. It's kind of my fault. I mean, a cat named Pancake is kind of doomed anyways. So um, anyways, the world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be, right? Um, Well, if you were here last week at Real Life, you would have heard Bacho talk about this idea that God can forgive. That um, when we find ourselves in a place where, where our lives are messed up, Um, That is the time where God meets us and and offers forgiveness and reconciliation with himself. And and tonight I'm going to talk about how God doesn't just offer forgiveness, but he actually takes it a step further and offers um, restoration for our lives. Um, Now, I believe that we're all on a journey. We're all on this journey of life, um, and no one else's journey looks the same as yours. We've all come in here with different backgrounds, different experiences. We all have different baggage. Um, But we all are kind of asking the same questions. We're asking, where do I fit? Where do I belong? Who am I going to journey with? Um, And many of you guys in this room are freshmen, right? And you find yourself, yeah, freshmen, you find yourself... (laughs) In week, week six of the quarter, and you're starting to get acclimated to Ohio State, you, um, you aren't getting lost walking to class anymore, at least I hope not. You know how swipes work. Um, yeah, you guys have taken your first midterm. Some of you have failed your first midterm. Some of you some of you have gotten Bs on your first midterms, which you feel like is failure, which I don't understand because I think B is a perfectly great grade to have. Um, Many of you guys have started to form your friend groups. A lot of you guys have had your first fight with your roommate. And I would guess that many of you guys have been to your first college party or had your first college crush. And um, so some of you guys are like, yep, college, great, love it. I actually talked to a girl this weekend who was like, "Um, my first six weeks at college have been the best six weeks of my life, hands down. And I love that for her. I'm really excited that that has been her experience. But... I would venture to say that there's others of you who that hasn't been your experience. I would actually bet money that there are people in this room who have really struggled. That maybe the last six weeks of your life have been the worst six weeks of your life. 
Maybe you felt lonely or invisible. I think when we come to college, it's really easy for the world to feel really, really big and for us to feel really, really small. Some of you might be feeling like you made a mess of your life. Some of you might be feeling like, man, I would do just about anything to get a redo and press the reset button of my life. And maybe it has nothing to do with the past six weeks. Maybe it goes way back for you. And freshmen or not, I think that we all have these areas in our lives that we'd rather keep hidden. We all have these areas that we're kind of convinced that if anyone knew this about me, if anyone um, saw this part of my heart, they might look at me different. They may not want to talk to me. And so um, I, my guess is that there's people in this room who are experiencing regret or shame, or guilt, or fear, or even loneliness tonight. And the reality is, like we talked about earlier, we do live in a broken world, a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. When God created the world, only goodness existed. Guilt and shame and regret and loneliness were unheard of until people came along and said, I'd rather do life my own way. I'd, love, I'd rather be in control. I think I am a better author of my story than God is. And so since then... Um, life has been like this. It's, it's been messy. It's been, it's been really hard. Um, so what does God do about it? Can God restore your life, even the areas of your life that may feel like they're unrestorable? And tonight we're actually going to look briefly at a story that gives face to this idea that God is a God that restores The story is in a Bible about a woman named Rahab. Now, Rahab is a woman, when we first meet her, some of us in this room probably wouldn't feel super comfortable around her. Some of us in this room probably wouldn't know how to interact with her. We wouldn't really be sure what kind of questions to ask her about her life. Um, She would definitely blow our categories for someone who would one day be called a great woman of faith by God. And that's because Rahab was a prostitute. Now, Rahab grew up in Canaan, and um, in Canaan, prostitution was actually relatively um, normal. It was a common thing for women to participate in, and many times women had zero choice in the matter. Um, A lot of women um, were just viewed as um, not valuable, and so sometimes baby girls were born, and they were thrown on the side of the road, and later people would come and and raise them to be prostitutes so that they they could make a profit. And then there were other situations in Canaan where... Um, women were convinced that the only way to please the pagan gods was through prostitution. There were even cults that said, um, if you participate in prostitution, the pagan gods will bestow greater fertility on your crops and your livestock, which was really important because that's how they made a living. Um, And then there were these other extreme cases where women were widowed and had no other way to provide for their family, and prostitution was one of their only options. And so the Bible doesn't tell us necessarily what category Rahab fits into. We don't know um, if her, her past was really hard and she was in a situation where she was widowed. We don't know if she had been manipulated into thinking that this is the only way to please the pagan gods. But um, what we do know is that she was a prostitute. Um, and my guess um, would be that she didn't enjoy this lifestyle, that she wouldn't have chosen this lifestyle, but because we live in this broken and fallen world, she found herself living this way. Um, now, Rahab is first mentioned in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Um, Joshua comes in the context of the Israelites, who are God's people. They're on a journey to the promised land. And they've been on this journey for about 40 years since God led them out of slavery in Egypt. Um, and part of the land that God has promised to them is the land of Canaan, where 
Rahab lives. And I kind of described a little bit for you what their culture was like, but um, it was even, it was messed up far beyond even what I described. Um, the kings were incredibly oppressive towards the people, and um, it was just a really awful place to be. Um, they worshipped pagan gods, like I said, and there's even speculation that part of that worship included human sacrifices. And so really Canaan represented all that was wrong with the world. Um, and this is Rahab's hometown. This is where she comes from. This is an environment she grew up in. Okay, so we're going to look at Joshua 2, where the story takes place. And um, kind of set you up a little bit. The Israelites are really close to crossing into the Promised Land. Okay, all they have to do is cross the Jordan River, and they're in Canaan. Um, so what they do is they send these two spies ahead of them to kind of go scope it out, figure out what their next steps were. Um, so the spies go, and, and they get there, and they're really not very good spies because they um, get found out rather quickly, and they find themselves hiding in Rahab's house. And we're actually going to read um, the passage in Joshua. It's a little long, but um, so just bear with me. It says, But someone told the king of Jericho, and Jericho is a city within Canaan, um, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I do not know where they came from. They left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath the bundles of flax she had laid out. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk to them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have been melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God above the heavens, above the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and all of their families. Okay, so the spies go to Jericho. They stay with Rahab. The king comes and is like, hey, Rahab, do you have the spies? She said, no, I've seen them, but they're not here anymore. All right, so they leave, and eventually the spies go back over the Jordan to the Israelites. They're there for a little while, and then they all come back over, and the Israelites defeat the Canaanites. The Canaanites are all destroyed. The Canaanites, the people who rebelled against God, are destroyed. And that the reason they're destroyed is because God's not okay with stuff like prostitution. He's not okay with impression. He's not okay with injustice. He's not okay with people being dehumanized and treated like trash. And he's not okay with people not acknowledging that he is the one true God and instead creating their own gods. And so he destroys them and gives their land to the Israelites, the, the people that were sent to represent who he was to the world. And we can assume that um, he gave them this land so that they could have a place to live the way God created human beings to live. So Rahab saves the spies' lives, but she risks her life in doing so. If she was caught, she probably would have been killed. Um, she would have been seen as a traitor, and we can't um, imagine that the king would have been very pleased with that. And so... Um, we're left to wonder, why did Rahab risk her life? Why did she feel like it was worth risking her life for these spies? And I think the answer is found in verses 10 through 11. 
Um, it says, For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt, and we know what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So Rahab is caught in a really tough spot here. She's freaked out because on the one hand, she knows her city Canaan is about to be destroyed by the Israelites. But on the other hand, if she's caught hiding the Israelite spies, her king is going to kill her. So basically what it comes down to in this moment is who is Rahab going to trust to save her? Either she rats out the spies and entrusts her her life to the idea that somehow the Canaanites can defeat the Israelites, or she acknowledges that her only hope is that the God of the Israelites will show her mercy and will save her life. You see, Rahab believes that Yahweh, who's the king of the Israelites, is different. She believes he's unique. She believes that he's the one who's in control of the heavens and the earth. She believes he's the one who's in charge of the future. She knew that having favor with the Israelites and the God of the Israelites was her only chance. It was her only chance that her family might be saved. And later on, if we continue to read through Joshua, we see that uh, Rahab and her family were spared, that they were the only one in all of Canaan um, whose lives were spared. And God had mercy on them. They come to live with the Israelites. So Rahab asked for mercy, and God had mercy on her. Now, in the New Testament, um, Rahab is mentioned again at a couple different places. Um, One of them is in Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with with those who were disobedient, because she had had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So you see, God saved Rahab's life because of her faith, not because of her morality. She was granted the right to become a child of God because of her simple faith. And what she did for the spies was simply a demonstration of her belief that God could save her and that he was the one in control. She certainly didn't merit God's favor. After all, she was a prostitute from Canaan. But she simply believed that her life was in his hands, and he was pleased with that. Now, this is a thing that is really mind-blowing about this whole situation, is that the Israelites would have viewed Rahab as kind of like the lowest on the low of a totem pole. Um, She's a prostitute, but she's also a woman, and she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Now, in the ancient Near East culture, it was very centered around men, and so women had little opportunity, they had little status, and they were of little importance. Um, And this is what I love so much about this story. I love that God chooses to use the unexpected. I love that he takes this woman, a Canaanite prostitute, to accomplish his purposes. It's so unexpected. It's crazy that he would do this. The Israelites would have never thought he would have done this. God used this woman to help shape their history and their future. He used her one act of faith to help fulfill his promise to his people. Um, And as the Jewish people remember this story over the years, God reminds them that the hero of this story is actually the exact opposite who they would think it would be. He reminds them of what kind of God he is. A God who used the lowest of the low for great things. He uses the unexpected. He uses the ones who've made a mess out of their lives. He uses the most least qualified. 
God uses Rahab as an example of someone with proper faith, not because her life was nice and shiny and she had it all together and she was the smartest, the most strategic person to use. No, he simply used her because she had faith and she um, had the desire to participate in his plan. And so God doesn't just spare her life. He doesn't just save her life and her family's life. He does do that, but he takes it a step further and he redeems her lifestyle. He gets her out of prostitution. He rescues her from that. And she gets to live with the Israelites, and she's taken care of. And then if we continue to read the Bible, we actually see two more things about Rahab. First of all, she ends up marrying the prince of Judah. Okay, so she marries into royalty. And then if we continue reading, we find that um, she was actually a part of Jesus' lineage. She was one of his ancestors. This woman, whose life was a complete mess, yet trusted God was the one who could save her, saw her life restored beyond her wildest imagination. And this is the same God that is living and active today. This is the same God who can and ultimately will restore your life if you'll let him. Um, Now, there are times that life can be pretty brutal. And I know a lot of you guys have experienced that. And maybe you're like Rahab and find yourself living in a way that you don't really want to live right now, but you feel stuck. You don't really feel like there's many other options. Maybe you're one of the 40% um, of college students who struggle with an eating disorder, or maybe you fall into the category of the 10% of women between the ages of 18 and 24 who've had an abortion. Maybe you have an addiction, maybe you're addicted to drugs or sex, or maybe you don't really even know how to function unless alcohol is involved. Um, Maybe you've been sexually abused or raped, or maybe you come from a home where you never really knew if you were really loved. You always kind of question, is my dad proud of me? Does my mom care? You just really never knew. Or maybe like rejection and abandonment were such a part of your story that you have a hard time trusting people because how do you know they're not just going to be like everyone else? Maybe despair is more of a way to describe your life than joy and hope. Or maybe, if you're really honest, you're someone who has caused oppression in other people's life. Maybe you've brought injustice or brokenness into other people's lives. Maybe you've been a part of um, gossip or judging or lying or bullying. I don't know. But um, what I do know is that God wants to restore your life. Um, do you, do you guys believe that? Do you guys believe that like Rahab, God not only wants to forgive you, but, but bring really beautiful things out of your brokenness? Do you find yourself struggling to believe that things could ever change for you? If God could show approval and love to Rahab, can't he do the same for you? If God can generously give her a future and restore her life, can't he do the same for you? You're not too far gone for God to restore your life. He wants to take hard stuff in your life and actually bring really beautiful things out of it. So what would that look like? What would it look like for God to like bust into your story and, um, and do things in your life? What would it look like for you to experience his approval in your life and not really have to um, use other people to get approval? That you would be someone that would be freed up to love people, not because you needed anything from them, but because you really wanted to, to love them. What would it look like for you, someone who's, who has struggled with an addiction or an eating disorder or 
um, you just have a crazy past, what would it look like for you to be free from that? And instead of um, allowing that to define you, you, you would allow God to, to use that to walk with other people who are struggling with the same things. Or what would it look like? Maybe you're someone like me who comes from a really broken and messed up home. What would it look like for you to trust God, to open your life to people, to trust that he could restore your life, that he, that he might put people in your life who, who would love you, who would care for you? What would it look like for you to trust God for maybe a family within this community? And what would it look like for you to maybe take it a step further and trust that you could be someone that could care for the broken and hurting people? Or what would it look like if you're someone who, who's kind of maybe not been the nicest person for you to really care for those people you used to treat like crap, for you to really reach out for them? What would it look like for you to have a restored life and help bring restoration into other people's lives? Here's a quote that I think does a really good job of, of kind of summing this up. The hope that God offers is raw and real and unvarnished. It rises through the centuries and reverberates in the hearts and souls of true spiritual pilgrims everywhere. This is not cheap hope, but a costly one. It's a tear-stained hope strong enough to comfort people who've watched their parents die, seen their dreams fade away, struggle with whether or not to have an abortion, or live through a divorce. It's a hope for the oppressed, the guilty, the haunted, the hurting, the forgotten, the abused, the mocked, the ignored, the lonely, and the overlooked. Workaholics and loudmouths and outcasts and spiritual fugitives like us. It's a passionate hope, a real hope, a battle-scarred hope, and yet a victorious hope. Only a hope like that could ever conquer heartaches this strong and wounds this deep and pain as fresh as today's headlines. The hope that Stephen James talks about is the hope of restoration. But maybe you're thinking, all right, Elizabeth, but you don't know my story You don't know what I've done. You don't know what has been done to me. And yeah, you you read the story of Rahab, and that's really great that God restored her life, but I could tell you a story of how God didn't seem to restore someone's life. And if that's where you're at, I'm sorry. I get it. I feel like I've been someone who who has doubted God's restoration and his ability to do that. But to you, I would say, fortunately, the story of restoration in the Bible doesn't end with Rahab. We're given another story we're given the ultimate example of how God will and can restore. For Christians, the promise of restoration is best exemplified in Jesus. Um, Jesus came as a human. He experienced what we experience. He experienced living in a broken world. He lived perfectly, though. He never sinned. He never added to the brokenness of the world. Yet he was mocked and spit on and beat up and eventually murdered. And he died. He died on the cross so that we could have an opportunity not only to be forgiven, but for our lives to be restored and for God to take these really nasty, hard places in our life and bring beauty out of them. And when he died, like, he really died. It wasn't just that he fell asleep. Like, he was dead. He was in a grave. His body started to rot. And until three days later, he was there, dead. And then three days later, life was breathed back into him, and he resurrected. He overcame the brokenness of the world. His resurrection demonstrates his victory over brokenness, over sin, over death in this world. And his resurrection represents what you and I will experience one day if you're a Christ follower. 
Jesus' resurrection means that restoration of the world is here. It's here. It has begun. We experience it now. But it's also coming in its entirety. When Jesus returns, there will be a day when he returns, when he restores all things, that nothing will be left broken. Nothing will be left unrestored. He will make all things new. And yes, we don't experience that in its fullness now. We don't. There's still really hard things about life. But we begin to experience it. We get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of the day that Jesus comes back and rights every wrong and restores all things. We get glimpses glimpses of beauty, of new possibility, of new life. Whatever you're walking through right now, this is not the end of the story. It doesn't end here. You will not always feel this way. It will not always be this way. Restoration is possible now, and it's coming in its fullness. John Golden says this. It's not over till it's over. The moments of justified anxiety, gloom, hopelessness, and despair stand under the promise of God. We may not be able to see how God can bring fruitfulness from them until afterwards, but we can believe that he will. Now, God doesn't always restore in our timing or the way we want or the way that we think he should. Um, I've been in kind of this weird, funky season the last year and a half of my life where life's just been really, really hard. Um, I haven't really liked this past year and a half of my life, if I'm honest. There's just been some things um, that I would change in an instant if I could. There's some unmet desires and just some really hard things in relationships. And, and I keep talking to God about it, and I'm like, okay, God, um, this would be a great time to restore. You know, if you did A, B, and C, that would make a really great story, and beautiful things could come out of this hard time. And, and it, he doesn't seem to be responding in the way that I want. And it's been really hard. I've had moments of despair and disbelief and loneliness. I even had a time when I threw my Bible across the room because I was so mad and so confused. I did not understand why God seemingly wasn't showing up or restoring my life in the way that I thought he should. Well, recently I realized that God has been restoring my life, that even though there are these super hard things in my life that I don't like, um, this is part of his restoration process. It's not fun. Um, like I said, it's been painful. I don't really like it, but he's, he's working in my life. He's doing things to restore my life. He's um, surfacing these things in my, my heart that are just really cold. He's surfacing selfishness. Um, he's, he's making me someone who's more patient, who's more kind, who's more sensitive, who's more generous. What he's doing is he's making me more like himself. So he's taking me, this really messed up person who thinks I know better than God, who thinks I should be in control of my life, and, and he's, he's taking her and he's forming her to look like himself. And that's God's restoration. He's making me into the kind of person that I can represent him to the world and I can enter into other people's stories. Um, So by faith, I stand up here tonight and I say that God is a better author of my story than I am. And I can say that um, because of the story of Rahab. We can look at her story and we can say God is a better author of her story than she could ever be. And, And I think the same thing is true for you. I think that God is a better author of your story than you are. He can restore your life, and he wants to restore your life. So, you guys pray with me. 
Oh, Jesus, thank you that you are a good God. Thanks that you offer restoration. Thanks for your son. Thanks that one day um, we will all, if we know you and, and believe in you, God, that we all will experience restoration in its fullness, Lord. God, I pray that tonight you would meet each person where they're at, God. I pray that they would know you as, as real, God. Um, yeah, just thanks for tonight, and we love you, Jesus. Amen.